ancient Chinese proverb, I'm told, that says, water drops pierce stone. That is, if one has perseverance and never gives up, one can always achieve one's aims. So the story is told of an ancient Chinese official named Zhang Yong, who served as a magistrate in the Chongyang County many moons ago. And at that time, society was becoming very corrupt. It was a bad place to live. There were soldiers, there were officials who were abusing their, their positions, they were abusing their people, their, 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 their power. And Zhang Yong hated that kind of behaviour. He was a good man. He was determined to, to stamp it out, to deal with people who were abusing their power. He wanted to punish them, and so he sought to engage with them wherever he could. One day he went into a county counting house and he saw a, a, just a minor official walking out and yet he saw under his hat he had stolen a copper coin. Dang Yong was furious. He had him taken out to the lobby for questioning. And the official, brazen as he was, said, well, well why do you make such a fuss? What's just a single coin? What does it matter? For this he was punished severely. And he eventually received the answer, while a coin every day, a thousand in a thousand days. The tree branch is felled by the stress of a rope, and the stone is pierced by dripping water. It's true, isn't it? In in our culture of instant gratification, we don't like it much, but we know that with persistence and focus, and bit by bit by bit, something very small can achieve something very big. The drop of one single uh, water can be joined over time by many others and it can even erode rock. One name at the bottom of a letter can accomplish a little but you bring a whole raft of other names onto the petition, name after name after name and petition after petition after petition and and politicians will listen and organisations can be brought down. But but what about, what about if the dripping is something negative? What about if it's something unhelpful? What if the rock is your faith, your trust in Christ, and the drip of water is seeking to erode it, and it's relentless, day by day by day, small-scale challenges, temptations, little things that seek to undermine what you believe that seek to draw you away from your faith in Jesus and on to multiple other things, pleading with you to trust them instead. Look, look, what you need is just a slightly larger bank balance. You know you can trust money. What you need, you need a spouse, that they will solve all your problems. What you need, you need to reach that slightly higher rung at work. Because if you have more responsibility, then you'll feel more fulfilled and life will be good. And of course, that those things in themselves aren't bad things. They're good things. All, all good gifts come from God. But if they draw us away from Christ, long term, little by little, bit by bit, inch by inch, then it's very dangerous. And I want to suggest to you that was the culture in which these early Christians were living. A world that meant they, they just bit by bit by bit lost confidence in Jesus. And I want to suggest that's the world around us too. Which means just bit by bit by bit we can lose confidence in Jesus. 
So our first point, if you're the kind of person who likes to take notes or that helps you, then we're thinking about the challenge to faith. For we live in a world that said truth as it used to, as we used to understand it, is now gone. Truth, well, it's a slippery thing, people say. It's, it's an outdated concept, even from a bygone era. You cannot be dogmatic anymore about truth, society says. Except for the truth that you cannot be dogmatic. You see, truth has been on a journey, so modernity said, God, God, move over. Let's free ourselves from the shackles of religion. Let's free ourselves from the shackles of God talk. That's just from a previous era. That's from those dark ages over there. It's ignorant. It's irrational. We've grown up now. And we are enlightened No, no, we will put ourselves at the centre of the universe. By reason, by thought, by hard work, we will come up with the answer. We will know why this world is as it is, what this world is about, how it works, why we are here. And the problem was, everyone comes up with a different account. So who's right? Whose account do you run with? Who trumps who and why? And so, thankfully, along comes post-modernity. Saves the day, and it sorts it all out and says, well, no, no, there's not just one true way. Just go with what you believe to be true. Be true to yourself and tell it as you want. You tell your story for the way things are. And I'll do the same for me. And yet, if we're all right, then when it comes down to it, none of us are. Because if in your story you win, and in my story I win, then what's real? What's true? And if you insist that you are right, then in fact, aren't you making some kind of power play over me, seeking to control me with your truth? What do we actually know? What is this world about? I was really struck as I was reading Tom E. Taylor's little uh, article in the Canvas magazine, which I would recommend to you at the back there. It's a a magazine that's produced, I think, twice a year, snapshots into people's lives at Maldon Road, giving an idea for this area and this church. Uh, Very helpful, this last one particularly. Tom writes about the East Oxford mindset. He's given me um, permission to quote him in this. And he says that many of the, the very good and valuable things that there are within this area, the way people think in East Oxford... And yet one danger or or a challenge that he writes of is this. He says, there's a cynicism about the possibility of truth. Since our area values openness to new ideas, there's often an assumption that any answers are provisional. They're temporary. They will not and they cannot be absolute. He says the attitude might be expressed this way. You have your truth and I will have my truth. There is no truth to which we are all searching for, but rather many truths out there, and all equally valid. That that resonates with my experience, people I've spoken to. Maybe even that's you this morning as you're here. The irony seems to be this, this enlightenment that we sought has actually left us all in the dark. And so people look at Christians and they say, Well, it's just your coping mechanism to get through life, isn't it? You must like hymns and ancient language and architecture. Me, I like sports or nature or alcohol or money or travelling. You obviously have a more religious leaning and that helps you get through life. You do your church thing. 
And yet what Hebrews says is that's not right at all. This is not our story that we've made up for trying to get through life, for coping with this world. Look at 1 verse 1. We can have humble confidence because God is not silent. God has spoken. That's what the writers of the Hebrews wants us to know. Hebrews is a book about drifting. It's a letter for Christians who are having their confidence sapped and who were drifting away from Christ. Like us, they were feeling the pressure of the world around them. The pressure of, of standing firm. They were tired of being different. The relentless dripping was taking its toll. And it seems like they had started well. If you flick on to Hebrews 10, actually where we'll be in a couple of weeks, you see that they began the race and they were flying 10 verse 32, remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. Other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So, So don't throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. They were prepared to suffer for Jesus. They had started well. They took the cost of what it meant to be a Christian. And then flip back again to 2, 2 verse 1. This is where our our little section is going. He says, We must pay the most careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. So they had been prepared to worship Jesus, to stand out and to be different. And now they've hit a hurdle. Now it all just seems a bit over the top. Being a Christian is costing them. The drips are eroding the rock. Confidence is being sapped and they're drifting away. And the drift for them seems to be back into Old Testament religion. as a religion that was acceptable. It was tolerable. It was legal. And so you can read through the letter and you can hear their parents' voices. Well, of course, this Jesus taught interesting stuff, but but worship him? Worship him as God? Of course, the stories about him are, are attractive, but you want to turn your back on us and live for him? And so Jesus, instead of being worshipped, is just thrown into the mix as another voice to listen to. Let's hear what he's got to say as he stands alongside the other religious leaders, the Abrahams, the Moseses. He's slipping more to the margins of their life. The famous (coughs) verses we'll look at next week, or the week after in chapter 10, they've stopped meeting together to encourage each other, to spur each other on, to teach each other. You see, boats drift off because their anchor isn't cut deep enough into the seabed. And the writer is longing for us to cut down deeply into the seabed, to expand our view of Jesus. He says it would be complete madness to turn your back on him. Have a, have a humble confidence, grasp that God has spoken to you. Why would you stop listening to him? He is God's word for us. Next week, why would you go back to Old Testament religion? It was where it all pointed. 
So let's get into the text. Firstly, in 1 to 4, we see the God who speaks to us. The Bible begins with God speaking. He speaks and worlds are made. He speaks and out of nothing things begin to exist. And then he makes people and he speaks to them. And he hasn't stopped speaking. The Christian claim isn't that we're busy making God God up to try and help us live in a scary world. He's not a, a philosophical comfort blanket. No, no, we're simply those who have heard God speaking. He loves to love. He loves to communicate. Francis Schaeffer hopefully says he is there and he is not silent. And we know he is there because he has spoken. He has made himself known. He's not distant and uninterested and mute. He speaks. And what he said then is what he says now. That's one of the refrains of this letter to the Hebrews. In chapter 3, for example, he reminds them of Psalm 95. And as he does so, he begins with the words, As the Holy Spirit says, present tense. Or as he reflects on the history of the Old Testament in chapter 12, he concludes with, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks, present tense. His password in history is a present word in the scriptures. And as long as God is silent, then there's nothing really to pay attention to. And unbelief seems completely reasonable. But he is there. And he is not silent. And so what God means to us, which is that very postmodern phrase that we hear, in many senses it isn't particularly legitimate because he's told us what he's like. I've shared this story before, but if I were to come home from work and to tell Zoe, my wife, how much I loved her, I said, you've got beautiful green eyes and beautiful brown hair. She'd be rightly annoyed because that's not her at all. I can't make her up and I can't imagine her and I can't create her out of my imagination. Now, I know her. I know her. Well, so God has revealed himself to the world. He has spoken. And we can't just make him up. Many of you will have spoken to me and talked about films and I look at you blankly because as I say I've not watched any films for the last decade unless they are Disney. (laughs) That's one of the side effects of parenthood. So, do you remember the scene at the end of the first Toy Story film? It is 17 years old so some of you may not have seen it and I apologise for that. It's when the toys seek to teach Sid the toy thug a lesson. Do you remember? So Sid will happily perform experiments on the toys. He will blow them up and he will chop off their heads and he will splice two of them together and create strange monsters and toys. And yet because of Sid's cruelty, while the toys are prepared to break their code of silence, as long as toys are with children, they are utterly silent and lifeless. But for Sid, for this exception, they come to life. And so Woody starts to speak, the cowboy doll Woody. We don't like being blown up, Sid. 
Take good care of your toys, Sid. Because if you don't, we'll find out, Sid. We can see everything, so play nice. For Sid, I take it life was never quite the same. Sid is in on the secret. And yet the fact that our God speaks is not a secret. It's very clear. We don't have to make him up, what he's like, how we should relate to him, what this world is about, because he has spoken to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So whether it was the commandments revealed to Moses, whether it was visions given to Ezekiel or or revelations to Isaiah or lamentations to Jeremiah or Psalms of King David, God has spoken authoritatively. But he hadn't spoken definitively. That is, the prophets were all looking forward like signposts, pointing ahead, straining ahead to someone else, to another time, to the last days. And it's a very conscious decision that he uses that phrase, the last days. It's a technical Old Testament term that refers to the final stage of God's revelation. It's the time they were waiting for, when the Messiah would arrive, when the promises would be fulfilled, And because of Jesus, because of Jesus, the last days are here and everything is different. He's not just a voice among many, but in all the world, in all of history, he is the one voice to listen to. In Jesus, God speaks to us definitively. And in Jesus, he's acted definitively as well. Everything's changed. We see he is the final word for us. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven, Do you see what he's saying? This, this word is Jesus and it is a, a word of fulfilment. The word of completion. He has spoken by his son and everything has changed. It's the truth you see on the road to Emmaus after the resurrection as Jesus explains to the disciples what's going on. And they saw for the first time it was all about him. He, he opened their eyes to the truths of the Old Testament and they're left looking at Jesus. Their eyes fixed on him. God has come in as a person to make himself known and he's done it through Jesus. Now there's loads we could say in these first four verses. They are something of a contents page for the entire book. So we're going to skate over and just scratch the surface. But he wants us to expand our vision of Jesus. He's not just a voice among many. He is God. Verse 2, he's the heir of all things. That is, the entire universe is his father's estate and he's been put in charge of its future. He is where it's all going. And he's where it all began too, through whom God made the universe. That is, Jesus is God's creative agent. He's the means by which he made it all. And he's the one who sustains it in verse 3. He's there at the end, he's there at the beginning and he's there now. He keeps it going. The sun rose this morning because of his powerful words. He says, expand your vision of Jesus. He's not just 
a voice among many. And more than that, he, he shows us exactly what God the Father is like. It's as if God is Jesus-shaped. It's the same picture used of coins in the Roman world. The coin would have a picture of the Roman emperor, an exact representation of the emperor. And so we know what he's like. Expand your vision of Jesus. He's not just a voice among many. And more than that even, he has sat down, which sounds an anticlimax, doesn't it? We think, wow, I'm quite good at that. I like sitting down. But for Jesus to be sat down in verse 3, it means he's finished. It means it's done. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Lots more on this for next week, but it means for now, as a Christian, your sin is dealt with. It means that there's never one sin too big or one sin too many. Because his death and his resurrection is enough. So he says, keep listening. Friends, don't drift. Expand your vision of Jesus. Have a humble confidence. Put down deep anchors into him. You see, I take it Hebrews is for people like us. People who, if we're honest, drift. At times our confidence goes, who may be Maybe in the past we're captivated by Jesus. But we know the temptation of the whispers from the world. We know the drip on the rock. The voices, the other gods that offer us life. Hebrews is a book for people like us. To build us in our faith, to stop us drifting. Just a couple of thoughts as we finish. To, to give us, if you like, a humble confidence for the week ahead. And the first one, and it's not rocket science, is we must keep coming back to Jesus. If water droplets can erode stone, then we must be aware, if you like, of the natural erosion of our faith. It will damage us, especially if this whole area of truth is something that's contested. It's the world in which we live. So if we're tempted just to, just to tone things down a bit, just to be a bit less vocal, just to take things a bit less seriously, then it's vital that we keep coming back to the voice of God. His word about Jesus, what he, present tense, is saying. And so we are praying, we are reading, we are listening We are encouraging and challenging each other as a church. Conversations, emails, texts, pointing one another to Christ. Urging each other to keep listening to him. Let me say, if Bible reading has slipped out of our routine, then slip it back in again. Some is a great opportunity for that, to get stuck back into listening to God. And yet, strangely... Without our routines, it can be a time of drift as well for many. So keep listening to Jesus. Keep coming back to him. And the second one is that we must remember he's not just a voice among many. 
If you're like me, you can feel the pinch to have Jesus in your mind as, as one voice out there. Maybe that is the drift for us in our culture. What he says is simply his take on stuff. You've got other religious leaders and gurus and ideas and they say their thing. And here we have Jesus saying his thing. But don't let your thoughts be squashed down. It expands your vision of Jesus. Maybe this week, memorise 1 verse 1 to 4. Maybe spend some time meditating on it, thinking about who Jesus is, what he's done. It might be unpopular to say it, but he has created and he sustains and he rules and he came and he died and he rose and he will return again. And that sets him apart from every other truth out there and every other truth giver.